So 20, 20 years ago, I'm a yogi sitting a retreat and uh, maybe it's a two week retreat. And the teacher says, teaching, teaching Dharma is like this. It's like the teacher has fallen off the edge of a cliff hundreds of feet above uh, ground, and she's just barely managed to catch a root that's sticking out from the face of the cliff with her teeth. (laughs) And a person ambles up on the top of the cliff, looks down, sees her, and says, tell me about the Dharma. (laughs) And I'm sitting there like, uh, sorry, bruh. (laughs) But... uh, now I kind of get where they're coming from. You know? <laughs> so fast forward 20 years, we're uh, all on a Zoom call a couple weeks ago to um, figure out the how we want to structure this retreat. And, um, and you know, it's it's a question. It's like, do we, what are we, are we going to, um, you know, kind of adopt a, a list. Are we going to structure the retreat around something, a list, like seven factors of awakening or something? We each do one of the factors, or are we going to um, just pick a kind of one theme and try to weave that through, you know, all the talks? Or are we are we going to do a kind of fairly traditional arc of, you know, kind of arriving, landing, orienting to the the inevitable difficulties, deepening into more stillness and samadhi. And um, I think Tuari asked me, like, what I, you know, what my thought was. And um, I just kind of blurted out, like, I I don't know how to teach, you know. (laughs) And they were all like, yeah, it's well said. <laughs> this is all true. And then I think Eugene said, like, okay, that, that is the theme, you know. Uh, not, <laughs> not, not, uh, not Matthew's an idiot is the theme. Not knowing, not knowing. Is the thing. <laughs> so I don't know for real. Like, I don't know. 
I don't know exactly how people learn. And I don't know, I don't know whether you, there's one impulse to give a kind of 10,000 foot overview of the, the kind of like something that dignifies the vastness of the Dharma. But then there's another like impulse to stay very much on the ground, concrete, clear. When I give instructions, I, I feel torn. I don't know. I don't know, on the one hand, how kind of like um, precise, technique-oriented ways of directing the attention to be, or how kind of impressionistic to be. The precision is, can be very helpful, but sometimes then you only kind of look in the places you think you're supposed to look when the instructions are too narrow. But you give vaguer instructions that where people may discover more aspects of their own mind. Um, and that's a beautiful thing, but it's, it's easier to get lost. And, you know, I, I feel like we, we maybe don't know so much, like, are the pedagogy of, of in, you know, teaching Dharma is still really evolving, I would say. Like, if you teach elementary school students in graduate school, you would learn about learning theory, how people learn, how kids learn, how, how we learn. And in this realm, it's like um, we've sort of inherited a, a certain kind of form, right? And it's a question. It's an open question. How do people actually learn the practice? I have some ideas, but I don't know. And I don't really know. I hy- kind of hypothesize, but I don't really know the kind of mechanisms of action of the Dharma, you know, like in, in clinical research, there's, there's, there's usually the question of like efficacy. Does this medicine work? Is it safe? Does it work? And then the question of mechanism. If it does work, how does it work? Right? Well, it, it stimulates these, you know, it's active at these receptors and that, that's, how, that's how it, how it um, confers its benefit, Right? And if you understand the mechanism, um, sometimes you can make the treatment better and, and it also helps actually illuminate the nature of the disease. And so in meditation, we say insight, you know, in the insight tradition, we say insight is the mechanism. And that seems right, but, uh, but there are probably many mechanisms and many of them have absolutely nothing to do with our conscious experience. It's more, as was said, like kind of um, muscle memory or some kind of training of, of, a, of a muscle. Um, the, the Buddha was, was sometimes called a kind of honorific name of, uh, 
you know, the unexcelled trainer of the animal within the human. Right? That's, that's pointing to a very different mechanism. That's not about conscious insight, things we can report. That's something different. It's complex to, um, to balance the teachings, right? Because we can almost never just like march to the beat of one Dharma drum. We try to do that. We try to boil the practice down just to one thing, one mantra, one pep talk. We keep giving ourselves. We don't stay in balance. We almost always have to kind of bob and weave between teachings. And so there's effort and effortlessness. There's technique and surrender. There's renunciation and self-care. And it's, um, it's not always clear how to, how to balance these. And every teaching, every teaching can be used or misused. Every teaching can be liberating or it can be appropriated by our bad habits, a way of acting out um, some of the forces of suffering in us. And every once in a while, I sort of like have these moments where it's just like, it's almost like a kind of a thought experiment where I just float the possibility, maybe, maybe, maybe my whole life is a kind of rationalization of habit energies that are so deep and so broad that I cannot even detect them. There's so much individual variation in how practice unfolds, right? I sometimes say it in the small groups, but it's like uh, there's, there are elements of this path that are very much universal and then elements that are very, very idiosyncratic, personalized, right? And um, yeah, so much kind of individual variation in how how practice unfolds, so many different dharma doors, so many different medicines actually required across time, right? And if we were one-on-one, face-to-face, you know, and I had the opportunity to give 90 dharma talks, there's no way I would give this one to all of you. but you're getting it. (laughs) And so, so it's kind of your job to sort through all of that. Yeah. Um, So, okay. Maybe you're thinking like, well, Matthew's uh, a new teacher. I'll give him. I'll give him a pass on on teaching. You know, 
but surely he knows how to practice. It's mm, not quite, you know, it's more like, uh, just like you, just have to um, really rediscover the Dharma in each day, in each moment. So, two uh, two Zen teachers meet. One carrying bags. Uh, uh, first teacher says, "Like, where well, you know, where where are you going?" Second one says, "I'm going on a pilgrimage." What's the purpose of your pilgrimage? The first asks. The second says, "I I don't know." And the other says, uh, 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 not knowing is most intimate. And the Dharma is, um, is a dance of knowing and not knowing. Sometimes knowing is medicine and sometimes it's a defense. Sometimes not knowing is bewilderment, and sometimes it's most intimate. It is a dance of uh, of confidence and humility, right? So much confidence and so much humility. And to forget you know, to forget the permanent possibility of being wrong. That's the first step in the movement towards uh, violence. So a lot of confidence and a lot of humility and knowing and not knowing. And those things are not opposites. Like there's not knowing on this end of the spectrum and not knowing on this end. They're really not opposite ends of the same spectrum. They're like complementary heart qualities. There is a kind of openness to the data of the moment, to knowing, and there's a kind of unwillingness to uh, cover over the mystery with self-serving certainties. And we say, you know, we say be be present, be present. And what what is that? What does that mean exactly? Is that a metaphor? What is that? What is that? And in a way the moment is known and not known. The moment is as simple as a sight and a sound. And the moment is also bottomless. And sometimes uh, knowing is is beautiful. And sometimes it's really 
merely a kind of defense against the vastness, a defense against helplessness. And so the Dharma is all about knowing, and it's also an experiment in newness, newness, which is necessitates us moving beyond the comfort of the known. So I'll say some about each side of this uh, dialectic. So knowing, knowing, um, ignorance of Ija is said to be the kind of like, in most, yeah, articulations of the Dharma, this is the wellspring of suffering, ignorance. What is the antidote to ignorance? Knowing, wisdom. Samyutta Nikaya, ignorance is the leader in the attainment of unskillful qualities, followed by a lack of conscience, a lack of um, concern. In a person immersed in ignorance, wrong view arises. In one of wrong view, wrong intention arises. In one of wrong intention, wrong speech, action, livelihood, effort, wrong mindfulness. In one of wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration arises. In the map of dependent co-arising, the map, the kind of causal map, the, the path diagram of how suffering unfolds, you know, it's, um, it's dependent on ignorance. And usually ignorance is, is defined as a kind of ignorance around the Four Noble Truths, that there is dukkha, that there is a cause, that there is the possibility of a cessation of suffering, that there's a path. And... Um, and so ignorance revolves around that, and that makes sense to me. Um, if we don't understand suffering, it's very hard to be happy. If you don't understand the mechanisms of suffering, it's very hard to be happy. If you don't understand that Wanting is always different from getting. It's very hard to be happy. We don't understand this, and naturally we, we sort of try to um, cling our way to happiness or freedom. If you... you kind of fantasize about building a life outside of the river of change. It's very hard to be happy. If you long for an identity that can provide solid ground, a kind of home, it's very hard to be happy. And so there's so much we must know, so much we must know. We must know ourselves, our conditioning. We must know our conditioning. 
we must really actually understand the forces, the way the forces of, of greed, hate, delusion uh, manifest in us. Because when we actually can't take responsibility for our suffering, we do not grow. When we're just kind of fidgeting our way from cradle to grave, just trying to, uh, yeah, just to rearrange the conditions of our life. We don't learn about the seeds of suffering that operate everywhere in our life. And our mind sort of, it, it, you know, it, it just becomes um, kind of smaller and defensive to, to keep the charade going that it's, it's, if I could just get things right. And it, it's, it's, it's a kind of radical act in the heart to be willing to look at our minds, to know our minds. to begin to be accountable to our suffering. And it's not accountable in a way that causes any shame. Like the first noble truth, that there is dukkha, that is like the most normalizing thing that's ever been said. There is suffering. It is woven into the fabric of life. And so we start paying uh, a kind of clearer attention to this because even though we, we have privileged access to our thoughts and feelings, like I can know this, but, but unless we practice, we have, we really lack like information about ourselves, both in terms of quantity and quality. We, we really don't know ourselves until we actually sit down. And some of the reason we don't know ourselves is because our attention is so fragmented. Some of it is because we are enacting our clinging so much that we cannot see the mechanisms by which it operates. Some of our lack of self-knowledge is a function of our own moralism and egoic clinging, shame and pride and the melodrama of self. And so it seems like the, the path of self-discovery, of self-inquiry um, is, is perilous because we might discover something that makes us less worthy of love. And it's not so. You will not find that. You will not find that. And so the path really, um, it normalizes, normalizes greed, hate, and delusion. Not a cause for shame. This is a cause for care, for wise attention, to be known. Larry Rosenberg says, um, in Buddhism, you don't study Buddhism, you study you. And Vipassana, you know, 
not a, a scholar, um, the um, sometimes means like um, separate, separate or through or in a special way, and pasana, seeing, to see through, to see in a special way, um, to separate, to begin to untangle the, th- the threads of experience. And mindfulness, the kind of basis of this Vipassana tradition, is, um, is very close to a form of knowing, very close to a form of knowing. And however thick our suffering may be in one moment, when mindfulness is present, when knowing is present, we also know that something else is also true. And that comes to feel like this very deep consolation, no matter what the level of heaviness or unpleasantness that is being known. The knowing is its own kind of blessing. And it's hard to get like, wait, how could it be that the knowing, if you're knowing difficulty, pain, grief, ache, heartache, how, how could the knowing be a consolation? But you, it is. And this knowing is, is very deeply connected with, uh, with love. Wisdom and love are not separable. Two wings of the bird of, you know, of awakening, but it's one bird. And um, read something uh, last week. Thich Nhat Hanh said something uh, quite touching about... Um, uh, he's talking about families and parenting, and he said, um, "He said if your child does not sense that your love is infused with understanding, it will not feel like love to them." Love is not separate from knowing; it's always attuned. There's always some wisdom in our love. And so, yeah, of course, we have to celebrate uh, knowing. But there are many, many Dharma places where you can't take your knowing. Yates said... um, Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. And to actually, Dharma is about, is about doing something new. Doing something new. Doing something new with body-mind, with our heart. Putting our heart in a kind of different posture. And to do something new, to really do something new, we have to put down what is known. It's tricky, but it's like we, we can't graft the Dharma into 
the infrastructure of our neurosis. Sounded kind of harsh. But that's what we do, right? We just kind of like, at least until it kind of explodes something in us and we start to develop a kind of tolerance for not knowing, we just sort of like fit it into the infrastructure of what we think all of our, what we think we, we are, what we think we want. And so we bring these kind of like very rigid models of ourselves and the world and models of what happiness is, what a, a model of what the good life is, what a good life would be. We bring like very rigid models into each moment, into each moment. And we know, we can detect in the silence here that, that um, it's very natural for us to just be compulsively reiterating our autobiography. Consciously, but also unconsciously. We're compulsively reiterating our, our vision of what we want, of what we need our preferences, you know. Ajahn Chah um, famously said, everything is teaching us. Everything is teaching us. It's a very, very deep kind of phrase, you know, to make, to make life a kind of feedback loop. And, um, and I would say it's not that we, you know, we before practice, it's not that we haven't learned things. We have, we've learned a lot, but all the lessons we've learned have been lessons about security. And Dhamma is uh, learning about peace, not security. And it's, there's nothing wrong that, that all the lessons we've learned have been about security. Of course, of course, that is our inheritance as animals. Of course, that's what's been, we've optimized for. But, uh, yeah, Dhamma is learning about something else. And so we see that um, virtually every desire we have includes our existence in it. And that makes anicca, uncertainty, uh, very imposing. And so naturally we, we do what we can to take care, <clears throat> to take care of anicca as best we can, mostly by uh, one way or another planning, worrying, And 
the the priority you know the priority in in virtually all moments any given moment the priority is ensuring more moments ensuring security safety and security is always about the future and so security is always about prediction always about being sandwiched between the past and the future and it's um sometimes said our brain is a kind of prediction machine and uh you see this subtly and 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 also at deep levels that we are sort of compulsively making um predictions about what's happening next guesses about what's going to happen next what this means for the next moment and so we live in a kind of state of of some vigilance where the present moment is a just the canary in the coal mine of the future the the value of this moment is just to make sure that the next one is going to be okay and so what happens is our knowing is is infused with our fear and our wanting our knowing is infused with our fear and our wanting what does this feeling what does this pain in my back mean about my body what does this heartache mean about my day you know what does this what does this or this or this what does this mean about my life my prospects um researcher says for much of human history scientists and philosophers saw perception as a process that worked mostly from the outside in light sound touch odors activate receptors in the eyes ears nose and skin progressively being refined into a richer picture of the wider world a new science of uh, predictive processing flips that traditional story on its head perception is now heavily shaped from the opposite direction as predictions formed deep in the brain reach down to alter responses all the way down to areas closer to the skin eyes nose ears the sensory organs that take in signals from outside the world incoming sensory information helps us correct errors in predictions but the predictions are in the driver's seat now this means that what we perceive today is deeply rooted in what we experienced yesterday and all the days before that every aspect of our daily experience comes to us filtered by hidden webs of prediction the ba- the brain's best expectations rooted in our own past histories maybe we say rooted in karma 
all experiences led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. That's how the, the Dhammapada begins. All experience led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. And so in an important sense, um, I'm not looking at the world. I'm looking at my mind. And each moment we're sort of like grafting into the, the story of me and assessing whether the trajectory is right. And we have a lot of fidelity to what we've already learned, to the known, to our existing models. And we sort of like stabilize ourselves in time by just reiterating who I am, where I am, what I am, what I want, what I hate, just again and again and again. And so we begin to sense the ways in which knowing and wanting are not separable. That any attempt to know is suffused by our motivations. It's not just as simple as just, okay, I will look at my breath. The knowing is infused, infused with my motivations, with my wanting. And so what we want is not strictly separable from what we see. And in order to really grow, we actually have to suspend our models, to suspend our knowing, to move beyond the, the comfort of the known. And in a way to see in a new way, we don't try to see in a new way, we put down our wanting. And when the wanting dissolves, everything is very different. Start to see the ways in which the, the, the fear, the craving, the aversion actually infuses the knowing. But there are, um, there are many places we cannot bring our knowing. And insight, insight, the insight meditation tradition, the insight, insight is a new way of construing phenomena. And it, it can't be like, known in advance. It's unsettling to be, you know, like we want some preview of what we'll know when we know more deeply, you know? And it's like, no, no, that's, no. Uh, it, the, 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 the knowing and the wanting that infuses that knowing must dissolve. And so we, we cannot envision 
anything, an insight in advance. So we start to practice this kind of relinquishment, relinquishment. Thinking is coping. Thinking is coping. At some level, all of our thinking is just a way of coping with samsara. Like, wait a second, no. My beautiful thoughts, you know, my beautiful Dharma thoughts. At some level, all, all thought arises out of a certain kind of insecurity. The, the questioner asked the Buddha, associated with what do appearances disappear? How do pleasure and pain disappear? Tell me this. I'm motivated to know how they disappear. And the Buddha's response is, appearances disappear when not conceiving concepts, not conceiving false concepts, not non-conceiving, and not conceiving disappearance. Good, good luck. Uh, <laughs> this is because conceiving is the basis of conceptual differentiation. Conceiving is the basis of, yeah? And, and it's like, conceiving, it's, it's so deeply habituated, but it's actually a kind of a movement of the will an expression of a certain kind of willfulness. And our knowing takes this like slightly defensive form. It is infused, infused. The conceptual proliferation, the conceiving is infused with our wanting knowing and wanting are not separable. And so there's this kind of gesture, this like radical relinquishment of not, of not, um, of not needing to know and not needing to freeze phenomena that do arise in awareness, not needing to freeze them into somethingness. What happens if um, everything is known, just pervaded, pervaded by a sense of uh, nothing at the core? And so we practice this kind of relinquishment, not needing to make anything out of life out of ourselves, not needing to um, just not, not needing to control anything in our sensory domain, just being willing to be um, impacted by the arising of phenomena 
rather than reaching out to control. And as that relinquishment deepens, like the the kind of you know space like empty diaphanous you know nature of phenomena becomes more more apparent we put down our knowing samadhi requires us to put down our knowing we we cannot we have to forget about the rest of the world to enter silence and how, how do we put down knowing its entanglement with wanting? It's something like surrender. Surrender. The knowing that is not drenched in wanting. The kind of relinquishment of all impulses to govern samsara. So, we um, put down a kind of the quest for security, at least in moments, at least in moments put down the the quest for pleasure, pleasantness rather than unpleasantness, for control rather than surrender. We just, we put it all down. We put it all down. And as that kind of, we relinquish some of that wanting, a different kind of view comes into shape. And uh, maybe we say our knowing is infused with, uh, with, with, with Dhamma, with patience, with love. And so we let the not knowing inform our knowing. We let the not knowing inform our knowing. And this, um, this helps us understand happiness in a much deeper way. And it's not that we get out of the game of prediction entirely, but what happens is we actually become much better predictors of our own happiness, the happiness of others. And it's through that kind of like willingness to surrender into the kind of wondrous dark of deep surrender total defenselessness against samsara. And out of that defenselessness, we discover our power and our knowing becomes infused with, uh, with dharma. Sit for a moment.
right now. What happens when we give up? We just stop trying to cope with samsara. become just alienated from all the narratives, alienated from our own autobiography, alienated from all our familiar preferences. We just relinquish. And the not knowing informs our knowing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.